winded. There you go. Um, so we can't all chat and socialize as much. I blame John Mark. Um, I'm in charge now, I guess. Blake's gone, so I'm sorry. Any announcements? Reba's smiling. You got something? No? All right. Health and well-being for everybody. So let's uh, open with a word of prayer, and then we'll uh, let Mike take over. Dearly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the beautiful weather, the sun that we seem to be finally having here in August. We thank you, God, for the many blessings you give us. We thank you for family and health. In your son's name, amen. I think you guys probably know Mike better than I do, since he elected to leave Skillman the, uh, the year I moved to Texas. <laughs> so that will be my introduction to Mike. <laughs> uh, good. Good to be with you. Good to look around and see some faces that have been in classes that I've taught for many, many years. Uh, uh, the faces have changed a little bit. Uh, we, won't, we won't go into specifics about all of that, but just a general observation. <laughs> so has this one. <laughs> the uh, elders uh, contacted me several months ago when they were setting this target date for beginning eldership selection and asked if I would be available to come and talk a little bit about Elders in general, uh, selection processes in general, and um, answer questions people may have about roles, expectations, and responsibilities that go with the role of being an elder. And in my sermon this morning, I'm going to be dealing a lot with the uh, responsibilities and the roles that they play. So I may touch a bit more lightly on that in this class, uh, but if you have a question about that, I'm certainly more than willing to uh, pause and, and answer it in the context of things that I won't be saying in the, uh, in the sermon. Uh, the selection of elders for a congregation is a particularly important moment. It should not be taken lightly. It should not be seen as just a routine that we go through every few years. In the year since uh, I was at Skillman, uh, I've had my own leadership development firm, strategic leadership development here in Dallas. And in those years, uh, I've worked with dozens of companies from mom and pop startups to Fortune 25 companies. I've coached about 600 executives and entrepreneurs. I've trained thousands more. And there's one thing that I have discovered from all of that experience, and that is that very few organizations outperform the capability, vision, and unity of their leadership. <coughs> leadership casts a shadow within which the organization is going to thrive. And when that's a broad shadow and a long shadow, there's a great deal of promise and potential within an organization. When that shadow is narrow and confined, the organization itself 
is going to face challenges in becoming more than its leadership envisions as possible. In Churches of Christ, the selection of elders is particularly important because of our unique history. During the Middle Ages, the medieval church became a clergy-dominated uh, movement. There were very few checks and balances that local congregations had on the priesthood. When the Protestant Reformation came along in the 16th century, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, and others challenged the doctrinal positions of the Catholic Church and some aspects of its hierarchy, but they really did not do much to change the role that the pastors, as they called them, uh, played within their congregations. So as our country was founded and various movements that had descended from Luther and Calvin took root in the U.S., churches continued to be clergy-dominated. Uh, there were very few checks and balances on clerical authority. It was against that backdrop, among others, that the Restoration Movement began with its appeal to simply go back to the Bible and try to do things the, as closely as we can determine they were done in the first century church. And part of that effort was, let's go back and yet let's use biblical terminology in ways that are consistent with the way those words are used in Scripture. And one of the things that became apparent when they started looking at how the early church organized itself and the kind of language that it used is that the New Testament emphasis is on elders leading congregations, ministers who do the teaching and preaching having an important role. But there's an emphasis in the New Testament on the leadership responsibility of elders. And beyond that, the only time the word shepherd is used to describe the functions of a specific person within the life of the congregation, it is used to describe the work of the elders. Paul, as he is leaving Asia Minor for the last time, calls the elders of the church of Ephesus to him at the end of Acts 20, and he says, I'm not going to see you again. I know this is our last time to visit. My final words are to you, to take heed to yourselves and to the flock uh, <laughs> among which you have been made uh, overseers by the Holy Spirit. Uh, you have a flock. Uh, you are the shepherds. And uh, Peter will say, I, I want to encourage you elders to shepherd the flock in a way that is exceptional and impactful in the lives of your individual members in church. And so we then began to look at that pattern and moved away from the practice of calling our ministers pastors because the term pastor was used in the New Testament exclusively when it appears in context having to do with the role of elders. And we then said that it appears that the New Testament design is that 
churches would be led, coordinated, uh, taught, uh, and um, developed, if you would, from a human standpoint, uh, through the agency of a group of people who were called elders. That was a pretty far cry from anything anyone else on the American frontier was teaching in 1820, 1830, 1840. Now today you'll find a number of churches that have moved to that viewpoint. Uh, Some right here in the Dallas area. Churches that have no direct connection with our heritage. But at the time we staked out that position, we were sort of a lone voice uh, holding to this idea that a, a group of elders selected by a congregation would be the ones who were responsible for conducting its oversight affairs. That's why, with our history, uh, the selection of elders is a truly important moment, because more so than almost any other religious tradition in the United States, we have looked to the eldership as a source of guidance, uh, consultation, uh, counsel, and confidence building for the bodies that meet in one locale. So I'm going to come back to the familiar language of 1 Timothy and Titus today, which is the place that we have the most exhaustive description of the kinds of people that ought to be placed in this position of serving as an elder. The the interesting thing about elders is that the New Testament says a lot more about their qualifications than it does about what they do. There is nowhere in the New Testament that there is a job description for elders that is as extensive or as explicit as the description of their qualifications in 1 Timothy and Titus. And that's a question we're going to address in the sermon this morning. Why why is so much more said about uh, their qualifications than about their roles? So just put that question in the back of your mind, and we'll come back and revisit it in a later hour. But today, I want to focus on what the language of Titus and Timothy tell us about some of the qualities that perhaps we don't pay as much attention to as Scripture invites us to consider. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, I want you to listen to these two sets of qualifications You've heard them many times, but I want you to listen today through a prism of saying, how are these lists alike, and how are they not alike? Because while there's a lot of overlap between the two lists, there are some distinctive differences from one to another. And why that difference? 1 Timothy chapter 3. It is a trustworthy statement that if any man aspires to the work of an overseer, that's the word that is sometimes translated bishop, episkopos, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, uncontentious, free from the love of money. 
He must be one who manages his own household, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. That's a problem we faced in Russia and Ukraine big time, is men coming into the eldership and pride getting the best of and not a uh, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil now then to titus paul writes a letter in which obviously the appointment of elders is a very important issue because paul turns to it immediately unlike the letter to timothy in which there's a lot of other counsel and then he comes around to the selection of elders in Titus, he moves to it just as soon as he gets his salutation behind him. He says in verse 5 of Titus 1, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man be above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above a reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict or those who gainsay, as the translation is sometimes rendered. Now, as you listen to those lists, were there any differences that you noticed? They're slight, but they're interesting. Titus mentions that the Elders should have believing children. Timothy doesn't mention that. Timothy says the children need to be uh, disciplined. They don't need to be out of control. <laughs> uh, they, they, they need to be uh, well-behaved, we would say. Paul seems to go further, and he uses the phrase technopista, which is subject to a variety of interpretations, but most translations render it they must be believing children. I think his meaning is a little bit different from that, but we'll just let that be our point for the moment. Uh, some of the specific qualities, as, they list, as he lists the ethics of the man, are slightly different from one list to another. Now, why do you think those differences occur? If there is one set of qualifications, why shouldn't these be carbon copies of one another? Why shouldn't Titus 1 have a footnote that says, see 1 Timothy 3 for qualifications? <laughs> I believe it's because what we've got here is a list of, an illustrative list of the qualities you should look for in people who hold this position. Not an exhaustive list, but an illustrative list. 
and an important illustrative list. Because the one similarity that really stands out to me when I read both of these lists is the way they both begin. This man must be above reproach. That's the beginning qualification in each letter, uh, in, in each list. And in Titus, Paul comes back later in the midst of the qualifications and says, now this is important so that this man does not fall into reproach. I've heard that word reproach misused uh, to try to disqualify someone who has some mistakes in his past, has some sin problems in his past. And that's not really what the word reproach means here in Paul's original language. What it literally means is a man not having anything in his life that the enemy could grab hold of and manipulate either him or discredit the church because of that thing in his life. You've got to keep in mind that Paul is very sensitive to the ever-present determination of enemies of the church. People who are determined to find one way or another to discredit and destroy the cause of Christ. Remember that Paul rarely got to leave a town on his own schedule. (laughs) He knew that you didn't have to go out of your way to stir up trouble in order for trouble to find you when you're trying to be a Christian. And so a lot of his counsel and a lot of the counsel of Peter is... Behave yourself in such a way that you don't give the enemy any ammunition. Don't hand the enemy hand grenades that they can toss back at you as a leader or at the church. And so it's important that we start off by putting a broad umbrella over the person we're looking for as being someone who is above reproach. And that's going to differ from society to society and from one time in history to another. You see, if we had an exacting list that was all-inclusive, and as long as someone met these qualities, they were eligible, then we would be facing the challenge of the qualities that once were credit-building may not be at a later time. I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Uh, I grew up here in Texas when we had blue laws. That meant most businesses were not to open on Sundays. Slowly but surely in the 60s, the blue laws began to be relaxed a little bit. But I can tell you, any businessman or businesswoman who immediately moved to start opening the business on Sunday and compelling their workers to come in and work on Sunday was not seen as a person above reproach. <laughs> that, that was not the way we do things. That's not the appropriate way for a business to operate. Or to give you another graphic example, a hundred years ago, uh, no one got particularly upset if a if a corporate owner had a manufacturing plant that was spewing out tons of pollution into the air or into the waterways. That wasn't a matter that would have caused reproach. Today, (laughs) that would be a matter of reproach. Uh, A man or woman who would do that with their business would 
be discredited in the eyes of much of the public. So this broad, this broad qualification must be above reproach is sort of a, a permission ticket for us to take other things into consideration other than just this strict list of qualities. And what should govern those other things we take into consideration is, is this something that gives the enemy a, a weapon to use against either the individual who is leading to try to intimidate him or to coerce him in some way? And that enemy could be someone within the church. I've known people in the church who knew things about an elder's past life that most people didn't know and actually sort of blackmailed that elder to do what they wanted them to do uh, or they would expose the past. Uh, went through a major church split that I uh, unfortunately was not able to prevent during one of my inward ministries in which that was the dynamic. A group of people knew something about an elder from a past life and we're, we're playing that card pretty, pretty hard. Uh, so we're looking for someone who is above reproach, uh, someone who has nothing in his life that can be used to manipulate or embarrass him or to discredit and embarrass the church. That's one term that I find we've not really talked all that much about when we talked about the qualities of elders. Uh, there's another term that is down in here that is really a very powerful term. And the way it gets translated, we miss the point altogether. And that is that both lists say that this man must be gentle. Now, when I speak of someone being gentle, what's the mental image you get? Holding a baby. Holding a baby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cuddling a kitten. <laughs> <laughs> the gentle giant. Actually, the word in Greek is coming out of a legal context. And what it means is someone who does not apply the law harshly or in a heavy-handed way. It means gentle in the way you interpret the law. That you never insist on the letter of the law at the expense of the spirit of the law. Aristotle wrote about this word at great length in his Nicomachean Ethics. And it's still a subject of commentary in modern law schools. I came across an article the other day from a 1942 issue of the Harvard Business Review in which there was a whole article on the meaning of this word in terms of modern jurisprudence. The idea is that that law to be compact enough that people can remember all the principles they're to be guided by has to be relatively brief. It has to be somewhat general. It has to apply to most situations. Otherwise, if it provided for every possible exception that could ever arise, the law would get so long and convoluted it'd make the IRS code look like a, a, fifth, a first grade reader, okay? Um, but when the law is general, when it is a broad statement of what we're going to do, there will always be situations that come along that to apply the law literally really is not equitable. It's not fair to the person involved. Jesus dealt with this a great deal 
in his give and take with the Pharisees. It is behind his famous statement that man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. The context is one in which the law had said, you shall not do any work on the Sabbath. That's the general principle. But we can go back into first and first century BC and first century AD rabbinic literature and find a number of examples of debates, very serious debates going on in the rabbinic courts over such things as if a man is sitting in his house on the Sabbath and sees someone walking down the street in front of a stone wall and the stone wall collapses and falls on the man, can the first man go dig him out without violating the Sabbath? Because he just did work on the Sabbath. Okay? There was even one rabbinic debate about whether or not if a beggar came to the door on the Sabbath, a woman could break the Sabbath rule that you were not to do cooking on the Sabbath and cook something for the man to eat. Okay? Uh, these kinds of debates were because people were taking the general law and saying it applies in every situation without exception. Epiakeia, which is the word that's used here, is the concept that a good leader knows that at times we may have to set aside the letter of the law to honor the spirit of the law. You see, the Sabbath was given for man. It was given so that man and his beasts and his servants would have a day of rest and relaxation and recreation. Uh, that being said, the Sabbath was meant to enlarge and enrich the life of the people. If I now take a law whose purpose and intent was to enrich and enlarge the life of people and turn it around and interpret it in such a way that I hurt people or starve people or leave someone to die under a pile of rock, that's, that's not the intent of the law. That's not the spirit of the law. Uh, one early commentator uh, in the church described this as having the skill to apply the law with the same sensitivity that the lawgiver would apply it if he were here. Because the lawgiver would know the intent of the law. He wouldn't be preoccupied with the letter of the law and would know when the letter of the law might need to be suspended in the interest of the spirit of the law. I've worked with one eldership that really got this concept, and I don't know when they developed it. It was in full bloom when I began to work with them. This was the church in Campbell, California. And it wasn't just isolated to one or two elders. It was, it was across the board. I was amazed in my first two or three years there at some very difficult situations that came up, and they almost instinctively said, our practice is, our rule is, this is a case in which we need to set that aside and do this instead. And in every instance, it was, it was the right thing to do. But they understood this principle, even though none of them were Greek scholars. <laughs> they had just sort of stumbled into the fact that, that you have to have that kind of flexibility in leadership.
Now, there are a couple problems with that. It's a slippery slope. If you don't have elders who are strong in their commitment to the word and strong in their commitment to obedience of God's commands, that can become an excuse for just setting aside things right and left. So there's got to be a counterbalance to that. Otherwise, it becomes an opening for, for license with principles and teachings of Scripture that are pretty clear, pretty straightforward. The other problem is that as an elder, when you set the accepted rule or principle aside to take care of an exceptional situation, you've got to be ready for someone to charge you with being inconsistent. And that's got to not bother you. <laughs> and I'll tell you who taught me that lesson. You, most of you know him. You knew Cliff Winters, who was a deacon here for a number of years. Cliff was an elder at the Campbell Church when I moved there. He had been their first full-time preacher, grew the church to the point that he felt like he had nothing more to offer them from the pulpit, and so he went to work as a butcher at a local grocery store and supported himself to help build the church uh, as an elder, and had been an elder there 25 years when we moved to Campbell. was sort of Debbie's surrogate grandfather, uh, as Lena was her surrogate grandmother, on the West Coast because we didn't have a relative within 12 or 1,500 miles of us. And, and he became one of my mentors, one of the most important mentors in my life. But the lesson I learned from him that I'm referring to today didn't come out of one of his mentoring sessions with me. We were, we were standing out in, the, in one of the three uh, patio areas that this church building was uh, erected around. And I remember the sun, that California sun beating down on our face and and he and I are having a brief conversation about something to do with the next service. We had two Sunday morning services and two Bible classes, and things were always in some state of last-minute detail that has been overlooked. We were in the midst of that, and someone came up and really got on him and said, Cliff, you elders just did such and such and such and such. And Cliff said, yeah. You think that's a good decision? Yeah. But that's not consistent with what you did a few months ago. He said, yeah. And he said, it's okay with you that it's not consistent. And he just sort of smiled at, you know, at the smile Cliff had, and he said, you know, I, I had determined a long time ago that if I tried to be absolutely consistent with everything I did, I'd never get anything done. <laughs> and the person didn't know what to do. They had never heard of someone <laughs> who was not defensive when accused of being inconsistent. But the reason he had that kind of confidence is because he understood this principle. What we did is not consistent with what we've always done. But there was an exceptional reason why this was the right way to do it, to honor the spirit of that principle, rather than getting so hung up on the letter of the law that we say you can't go dig a man out from under a pile of rock on the Sabbath. Now then, this leads to the third thing, and the clock is getting away from me. I've already been accused of being long-winded. Most of you know I don't need an introduction, but I could use a conclusion occasionally. Uh, the, uh, the necessity of another quality that's not mentioned here, but it's almost automatically inherent in leadership, is courage. <coughs> 
I have concluded, having written several books on leadership now and having taught leadership literally around the world, that the single most important quality for any leader is courage. Now, if you think about that, historically, it's easy to see why that's the case, because the word leader comes to us from the ancient world and the military context. In a military conflict in the ancient world, where was the leader? He was in the front. He was going into the the phalanx of spears pointed in, in the direction of his troops first. And that didn't change much over the years because we didn't have, you know, modern communication devices. So if you ever see a documentary of the Civil War and you see those formations of troops on both sides who are advancing toward one another, where is the general? He's not back at the Pentagon working on war plans and sending emails. The general is on a horse riding up and down behind the line. Why? Because he's got to be close enough to his troops that they can hear the order. And he's got to be on a horse so he can get the order conveyed down here and conveyed down there very quickly so that we stay coordinated in our movements. Now, if you've got the enemy marching toward you with guns raised, and you're on a horse, (laughs) and everybody knows who you are, you are a rather inviting target. So it took a lot of courage to be a leader. And that's true wherever leadership is found. If you're going to be accused at times of being inconsistent, like Cliff was, if you're going to take a tough position that's not popular with everyone, if you're going to stand for something on the basis of principle that, that people say, no, I don't agree with that, I think I'm going to work to undermine that. It takes courage. That's not in this list of qualities. But it is implicit in the role and the responsibility that is there. Because I can tell you the greatest disasters I've dealt with in the life of churches, in the life of institutions, and in many companies that I've worked with over the last 15 years, it's been lack of courage on the top of on the part of top leadership. So yes, you're looking for this set of qualities, this illustrative set of qualities, and you don't want to, you don't want to compromise on these qualities. They are important. But there are also other considerations. Is this person's life above reproach given the ethos of our community and our world today? Does this person understand how to apply law in a gentle way so that it is not applied harshly or in a heavy-handed way or in a way that, that neglects the well-being of the person who is being victimized by that application? And does this person have the courage to be the leader that God is calling them to be? You've got the right to to make those judgments. Even though they're not in the list, some of them, uh, certainly not the courage one, the right is there. Because when Paul planted the churches in Asia Minor, he came back through a year later, and Acts says 
He appointed elders in every church. And the word appointed there in Greek is kairotoneo, which means to raise the hand and vote. Those elders were elected by their congregations. They were approved by their congregations. Now, Paul tells the elders at Ephesus in Acts 20 that the Holy Spirit has made them overseers of the church. But the Holy Spirit does that through the mediation of the church, which in its wisdom and judgment raises its hand and says, these are the men for the job. Once an eldership is appointed, there is no additional power or authority in a congregation that wasn't there to begin with. If you don't have elders, can you discipline a wayward member? Apparently the church at Corinth could because Paul lays out specifically what the church is to do to discipline someone and never even mentions elders. We don't even know if there were elders at the church in Corinth at the time. Can a church send out missionaries before it has elders? Can it do benevolence work? Can it, can it exhort one another and encourage one another? There's nothing new a church can do once it has elders that it couldn't do before. The church now is entrusting the oversight of those things it's responsible for doing to this group of men. But the principle is those who entrust also have the right to, to reevaluate. And a congregation that decides that elders are not living up to the standards that are called for has a right to raise that question. It's not rebellion, it's not anarchy, it's just an extension of the principle that the church empowers, entrusts, and it has the responsibility then to evaluate whether or not that trust is being properly carried forward. So this is not a selection process in which you're selecting a group of men to put over there to do the work, to see that shepherding is done. You've still got just as much shepherding responsibility as you had before. Not a group of men to go teach and preach. You've got just as much teaching responsibility as you had before. It is a move to entrust men with seeing that these functions in the body are carried forward effectively. Let's conclude with a moment of prayer. Father, thank you for your, your love, your grace, and for giving us um, a framework within which to do your work that has structure and yet flexibility so that we have the ability to evaluate how we take these principles and apply them to our own situation and our own setting in today's world. Help us to understand that when we are dealing with missionaries on foreign fields who may find that they have different sets of cultural considerations that must be taken into account when leadership is being established. In all things, Father, we ask that you would bless those who would consider this good work and give them the, the desire and the courage to step up and, and be responsible parties for the well-being, the life, and the future direction of this congregation. In all things, strengthen us as a people and keep us united behind our leadership and around one another so that we can move forward with one voice and in one accord to make your kingdom all that you want it to be in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.